0: Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Appropriate Omnivore. I'm at my new home on New Dissident Radio. My guest today is Paul Greve of Primal Pastures. Plus, the desserts will tell you how to live appropriately in the upcoming week. But first, let's go to the appetizers and find out what's happening in the world of real food. Colorado farmer Renee Abbott has been arrested under the charge of grazing animals in the municipal right-of-way. According to Renee's husband, Ethan... The charge was due to damaged fencing on the farm earlier this year that could allow the livestock to escape. The Abbots were unaware that any livestock was loose until a deputy sheriff showed up on their property and advised Renee that she needed to round up the cows in the municipal right-of-way. The arrest is certainly strange. To add to this looking like another government attack on a small farm, this also is abuse to a nourishing mother, Renee had to round the livestock while she was pregnant, which resulted in her falling and being hospitalized. And as she was arrested, she had been nursing her four-month-old son. Next, a team of scientists for the journal Biological Conservation say that seafood, which is certified as sustainable, isn't strict enough and might mislead consumers. The objections made to the Marine Steward Council include being unaware of the long-term impact of fishing, endangered sharks and turtles being caught accidentally, and the effect that dredging and seafloor trawling have on marine life at the bottom of the ocean. Like just about all food labeling, being certified as sustainable fish has its flaws. It's always best to do your own research before buying any food. Next, the American Chemical Society released a report that revealed that imported rice from China and other countries contains very high levels of lead. China refuses to enforce environmental regulations, and at times the river water used for irrigating crops for export can contain industrial waste, such as heavy metals, solvents, and dangerous organic compounds. This is one of several reasons to avoid any food from China. As always, the best food is from local farmers that you know and trust. And finally... New York City Mayor Michael Bloomberg is trying to pass a law limiting the sale of large sugary drinks. And a new study from UC San Diego shows that restricting drink sizes could actually lead to consumers purchasing more sugary drinks. The study found that when larger-sized drinks are offered as bundles of smaller-sized drinks, people are likely to buy more drinks. While I see sugary drinks as one of the biggest contributors to obesity and poor health, I'm against any sort of ban on them. I don't see the bans as effective, and I'm glad to see a study backing up my claim. And now, for the main course, which today is, Feeding Your Chicken the Right Diet. On the appropriate omnivore, we constantly talk about grass-fed meats. Grass-fed is important to just about all animals. But not all animals need to eat a diet of only grass, the ways that ruminants like cows should be. For chicken, it's certainly important that they spend a good amount out on the pasture. But unlike cattle, chickens aren't supposed to be raised on a vegetarian diet. Chickens are omnivore and are healthiest when they get their share of bugs and worms. Chicken can also eat some grains, making them differing from cows on that as well. But like cows, chickens also need to have a natural diet. They shouldn't be given any hormones or antibiotics. Plus, they should be fed a diet free of GMOs. Here to talk with me about how to raise and feed your chicken the right way is Paul Grieve of Primal Pastures in Temecula, California. Paul, great to have you here. You
1: too, Aaron. Thanks a lot for having me on. I'm excited. I love your show.
0: And I love what you're doing. Now, Primal Pastures, this is a pretty new farm.
1: It is, yeah. We we just started in April 2012, and actually there's four of us. So it's myself and my two brother-in-laws and then my father-in-law. Um, my father-in-law brings the actual requisite experience and he grew up on farms and ranches in the Midwest his whole life. and then he ended up in construction 30 years, always wanted to get back into farming but didn't really have the means to do it. So the three of us, I'm Paul and I've got Rob and Jeff are my two brother-in-laws. The three of us ended up deciding, wow, this would be fun to just help him get into it. We're not looking to really do anything big, but it would be fun just to set up a little backyard flock, and it's really grown from there.
0: Does it feel like it's only been a year that it's been around?
1: It's pretty amazing how much has happened in that one year. It feels like we've been doing it for 10 years already, but just the people that we've met and the success that we've already had is really, really promising. We're excited to keep growing it.
0: I have the same thing with my show because I've only been doing this for a little over a year, and it doesn't feel like that because of all the people that I've come across interviewing on my show and you know people that have worked out for future guests, just everyone that I've told about my show. It feels like I've been involved with all this forever.
1: Yeah, it's, it's cool when you can align something that you're passionate about. Farming was never something that I thought about. I grew up in the city Um, in Seattle, Washington. And then I went to college for business. And then I joined the Marine Corps after the college. And farming was sort of the last thing in, in my mind. But my background story a little bit is I started to get some pretty bad arthritis and stuff in my knees and elbows. I was a college athlete. And it was starting to get kind of bad. And so I started hearing about CrossFit and eating paleo and stuff like that while I was in the Marine Corps. And I switched my diet. And I've heard this story from a lot of other people, too, is that once you switch your diet, it really started to change my worldview. And I've heard that from others, too. And I started to more understand and become interested in where my food source was from and all that. And once I started going down those paths, you know, I became very passionate about where my food came from and started realizing how few and far between good, proper farming practices are, especially here in Southern California. So... When Tom decided that that's what he wanted to do, I was really excited to help join him and help him out on the venture.
0: And what's your role specifically with Primal Pastures?
1: We all consider ourselves farmers first, so we don't have titles like CEO or you know CFO or anything like that. We all, first and foremost, are farmers and we help out on the farm. Rob and Tom are really the ones that handle the day-to-day, um, out rotating the chickens, moving them around. Um, bringing out the water and the feed and stuff like that. My personal role—I do all the website and I help out with the sales and marketing and stuff. And then I'm also one of the guys that'll do our local drop sites, which I can talk about that more later. But we do um, drop sites throughout Southern California.
0: And in addition to paleo, I know you're also connected with the West A. Price community.
1: Yeah, we've. Tom was really, really into the West A. Price community long before I was ever even interested in healthy eating, but. Weston A. Price is really, really closely in line with what we believe, and we've had such great people from the Weston A. Price Foundation in Temecula and then also Pasadena and in L.A. that have just come alongside us and said, hey, we we really support what you guys are doing. We love having a local source for pastured chicken, um, and they've come out and supported us by buying our food and then also coming to our events and stuff like that. So we're uh, very grateful for those organizations that have helped us out along the
0: way. And so in learning about Weston A. Price Foundation, about the paleo diet, were there some specific people in these movements that inspired you?
1: I, I first drew a lot of inspiration from a guy named Rob Wolf, who if you're listening to this podcast, I'm sure you already know. Yeah, He's, he's run one of the most successful um, paleo podcasts out there, and that's who really gave me my basic Paleo 101 intro. Um, another guy that I draw a lot of inspiration from is Joel Salatin, not only for his farming practices, but just for his entrepreneurial spirit, his attitude, um, the way he approaches life, and some of his YouTube talks and stuff like that are ultimately what really got me excited about farming and bringing farming back to my family and bringing farming back to Southern California.
0: Joel Salden is certainly one of the most charismatic people, I think, in this whole movement of pasture-based farms.
1: Yeah, I think he's kind of the grandfather of at least the pastured revolution, you know, I, we like to call ourselves grass farmers just like he does, and it's like we're not not—we're not here to raise animals. I don't raise animals. Nature raises animals. I'm just here to provide a good foundation, grass, and the right habitat for them to be raised in, and, and nature is really the one that does that the best. So I, I'd be as uninvolved as possible with that whole process. I
0: know one of the things about Joel Selden's farm is he uses the term beyond organic. Is that a term that you would describe your farm as well?
1: Yeah, I like to use that term too because being organic, being certified organic is not only really expensive and it's hard to get the certification and it's hard to get all the paperwork filed and all that stuff. But at least with our customer base, there's sort of a, I'd call it like almost a disrespect for the term organic at this point, because that's really um, a label. And anytime you're relying on labels to figure out what kind of food you want to put in your body and into your kids' bodies, I think you can start to run into some issues. So, I I don't think there's anything inherently wrong with the term organic, but I love the term beyond organic because he's saying, yeah, of course we're hitting all those basic guidelines. Of course I'm feeding my birds stuff that's free of GMOs and free of soy and all that stuff, but we're going way beyond that. We're just trying to satisfy the basic guideline. I want to make the best bird in the state. I want to make the best bird in the country because this is something that I want to be able to feed to my kids and then someday to my grandkids and feel really good about it.
0: We do certainly hear a lot of words out there, especially applying to chicken and to eggs. I mean, there's cage-free, free-range, pastured. Is there a specific term that you use to describe your chickens and your eggs?
1: The term I like to use to describe our eggs is pure liquid gold because they're Love like it. the most amazing eggs I've ever had in my life. Uh, they're they're pastured free-range eggs. Um, they're also no soy, no GMO. They're also humanely raised and sustainably farmed. Um, the list sort of goes on with all this stuff, and I guess the guiding principles of our farm is we're going to save no expense. We're just going to raise the best bird possible, and we want to supply the market if that's, with that. With what demand is out there, we want to be able to supply that. I wish that we didn't have to use all those words. Like I hope in five or ten years, I can just say these are eggs. You know, not have to qualify it with all these awesome labels that we have, but I think you should have to say, you know, these are factory farm eggs and they're grown on non or on total GMO feed and they're grown in captivity and all this stuff. But I wish that we could just say these are actual eggs, like your like grandparents used to eat or something um, and not have to say all these labels. But we say them because because people, um, they should know and, and we're charging extra for a really premium product. And so we want to make sure people know that they're getting the top value that we're providing them. That's
0: what I was going to say. Why are we the ones that always have to put on the labels to say this is grass-fed, this is pasture-raised, this is organic, this is non-GMO, this is BPA-free? It should be the products that have these toxins and these very unnatural ways of producing things. They're the ones that should have to label everything.
1: I totally agree with you on that. And Unfortunately, that's not totally the case, although I will make some... Argument that those products are labeled if you know how to read the label. So you, it's it that you have brutal. to learn this second language. But um, as as much as I love Prop 37 and and all that stuff, I do think if you can learn the language and you can tell what's what's in your food. I mean, if you read a um, oh geez, what's the not the appropriate omnivore, but the
0: the omnivore's dilemma.
1: Omnivore's Dilemma, yeah. If you read The Omnivore's Dilemma, he goes through and he lists out, okay, here's uh, about 50 different terms for corn. Um, You know, if you can just learn three or four of those, then you can pretty easily spot what's going to have junk in it and what's not.
0: Right. The Omnivore's Dilemma, certainly the inspiration for my title, (laughs) hence my name, Appropriate Omnivore. Another great one is Jeffrey Smith, who did the documentary Genetic Roulette, and he's written a couple books. He's the foremost expert on GMOs. He gives a great explanation of how you can go about avoiding GMOs by buying things that are certified organic, avoiding the foods that are GMO altogether. There's a number of ways. So you're right. There is a way that you can read labels and also ask questions myself. And I find a number of my colleagues will ask questions when we're at restaurants about food.
1: Yeah. And if the restaurant's worth its salt, they should know the answers to them. And I, I think that's the exact same um, when you're talking to your farmer, you know, you it especially when you're talking about buying meat and buying chicken and eggs and stuff like that, it's not always going to be labeled as clear. It's definitely not going to say on the package what that animal was fed. So it's not as easy as, you know, if you're buying a, a cereal bar or something like that to know what's in that thing. Um, so it really means more about going on and talking to that farmer and figuring out what's going on and probably going and seeing the operation yourself if that's at all possible. Um,
0: it becomes a little bit more difficult with meat and stuff like that. What's your thought on banning GMOs altogether?
1: I think it's really tricky. Um, To me, at the face value of the argument, I'd like to disband the GMOs. But I think it goes deeper than that. I think we have to think really hard when we talk about having government regulate anything because there's just going to be so many side effects. And the libertarian in me always screams, no, 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 more regulation is bad. But then, you know, just the organic in me says, well, we'd be so much healthier if we didn't have all GMOs and stuff. So I don't have a, a formal stance, and definitely Primal, Primal Pastures doesn't have a stated stance on that or anything, but I do think I do think it's hard to say it's as simple as well, let's ban GMs and then the country's healthier um, because it always comes back to, there's other arguments like we're in a free country. If people want to eat GMOs, they should be able to eat GMOs. Um, it should all come back on the consumer. So I think there's great arguments on both sides. And I think instead of me trying to do what Joel Salton says, salvation by legislation, I like to go out and just make the right decisions for myself, try to influence my circle of friends and my network um, to try to make the right
0: decisions. I agree. It is hard to know. I mean, is it right that through legislation just ban it? The one thing that does make me somewhat want them banned is the issue of GMOs blowing over into farms that are non-GMO.
1: Definitely. Yeah, that's a really tough one.
0: So now we're talking a little bit about chickens feeding, being fed GMOs. What specifically do you think are the right things for chickens to be fed?
1: Well, similar to what we do in a Western-day price kind of paleo-primal diet is go back to what, what were we doing a 1,000 years ago, what were we doing 10,000 years ago? And then we're not just going to try to perfectly replicate that, but let's use that as a baseline to carry us forward to now. So we we kind of know what people were eating, but let's look back at what, you know, the wild jungle fowl of Southeast Asia or some of these birds out in the African Serengeti and stuff like that are eating. They're basically out on pasture and they're eating the grass, they're eating the bugs and worms and stuff like that. And they're essentially foragers and they can, Chickens have a very strong stomach. They can eat just about anything, which has probably been their curse with the factory farming and all that stuff, because they sort of adapt well to any kind of a diet, although so there's certain things certainly um, are bad for them. So we use that as a as a natural template. We want to stick as close to that as possible. So as of now, I think with the current landscape of Um, grain and all the stuff that's out there right now, what we feed our birds is a mix of pasture and then also supplemental feed. Um, First and foremost, we want our birds to get as much pasture as possible. And the way that we do that, and it's really cool because we're in Southern California and a lot of places um, you just simply can't do this, but we're able to brood our birds actually outside and on the grass, sometimes on a little layer of wood chips. But the beauty of that is from day one, when we get those chicks, they start picking and they start scratching in the grass. and They're actually finding little bugs and worms and seed heads and little pieces of grass and stuff like that that they can eat. And so I don't know how familiar you listeners are with, with the chicken raising process, but typically, even in a great pasture-based system, that bird's going to be inside for two to three weeks. And so they're going to be eating strictly supplemental feed and I know that you can get some pretty good supplemental feed, but it's still, I don't care what you say, it's still not as good as pasture. So the, the advantage that we have to being in this beautiful weather, 75 degrees basically year-round, is that we can keep these guys outside. And they learn from day one that their feed, their primary source of nutrition, should be from the ground. And what that translates into is a much healthier bird. Come two to three weeks, when most birds... Even the healthiest birds would be getting transferred onto the pasture. Ours have already been there for two to three weeks, so they're already out getting a lot higher percentage of their nutrients from the ground and stuff like that. And so that's our that's our number one goal, is to give the birds as much natural pasture as possible. To supplement that, because we haven't done the studies specifically on our birds, but a lot of the pasture-based research that comes out says you know, maybe you can get 20%. Maybe if you're really good, you can get 30%. Nobody's done studies yet on birds that are raised on pasture, so I hope that we're higher. But we're talking about 20 or 30% of their overall caloric nutrient intake coming from the ground. So to supplement the rest of that, you've got to use some kind of a supplemental feed. And to me, it's about reducing the damage control on that as much as possible, trying to provide them the healthiest possible supplemental feed that you can Because I think the best that you could do would be 100% off pasture. So what we do personally for our farm is the supplemental feed. Um, We get it locally from here in California, and it's an all-organic and non-GMO soy-free mix. And it's got corn, and it's got canola, and it's got alfalfa, some dichotomous clay. Um, It's got maybe 15, 16 all-natural ingredients. It doesn't have... Any of the junk like they would have um, in the factory farms definitely doesn't have any of the antibiotics or any of that kind of stuff in it because, I mean, like any of your other farmers on the show will tell you, you just don't need that stuff when the bird's being raised outside with plenty of room to walk around and, and eat the right food.
0: And so you've certainly mentioned that you feed the chickens some grain, and I know you've also talked about the paleo movement. Do you think that chickens and birds digest grains different than humans do?
1: I don't know if there's I don't know if there's hard research on that yet. I know that there is grain in grass, so any of the seed heads and stuff are grain, so I think it's a natural part of the bird's diet. I definitely don't think they should be getting seventy five percent plus of their diet from grain. Like you said, they're an omnivore. They're definitely meant to be out picking and scratching and getting protein from bugs and worms and stuff like that. But I don't think that a little bit of grain, especially the organic kind of grain Uh, goes against their natural diet.
0: I'm trying to look more into the research, into the science behind all this, but I just remember that line from the documentary Fathead, Tom Naughton's documentary, where he talks about how we shouldn't be eating all this wheat and grains, and he he says in it, humans aren't meant to eat grains. Birds, those are animals that can eat grains.
1: Yeah, and I think whether they can or can't,
0: um,
1: of course they can. We know that they can eat grains. Whether that's the best thing for them, I think that's still up in the air. And the thing I definitely don't think is true, they don't need grains. I don't think that a bird necessarily needs um, a corn or a soy in their diet in order to survive. And that's obviously proven with any of those animals that are out uh, in the wild. And we've been able to observe some of that stuff. We've good research on some of that. Certainly, they they don't need grains. Now, does that mean that they shouldn't ever have any grains? No, not necessarily, but we're also looking into the research on this stuff. And one thing about us is, especially since we just started a year ago, our goal is just to make the healthiest product possible. So we're not closed to any um, ideas or solutions that come up, any kind of new research that comes out. If we can get definitive answers on, hey, if you guys tweak this a little bit, then you have a healthier product. If you tweak this a little bit, We're just here to try to make the healthiest product possible. So, I mean, we're definitely not saying that what we do is the holy grail, although we are just trying to make the best food possible. So that's that's all we're trying to do.
0: Another thing that I hear debated between poultry farmers is if they can be fed any soy at all. I mean, I certainly think, like you were saying, with grains, that it shouldn't be the main part, and certainly soy should not be the main part of their diet. I know some that say— they can be fed a small amount. Others say they shouldn't be fed any soy at all. Do you have any thoughts to that? Well,
1: one thing that we've seen a lot just with our customer base is a strong aversion to soy. And it's not just a mental thing. um, People have a real intolerance to soy out there in the community. And a lot of these people that are our customers understand that that's where their intolerance is at. And so they really value um, the bird being fed no soy at all. So, I think soy is one of the highest percentage GMO crops um, in the U.S., if not the highest. So just finding organic soy can be really hard, and it can be really expensive. So when it was presented to us, and we found a a feed guy that does no soy and GMO-free, it was kind of a no-brainer, and we said, yeah, let's definitely take the soy-free stuff. Now, it had some organic soy in it. Do I think that would... I mean our birds were way way um, unhealthy or worse off no I don't really think so but being able to just take the soy out completely um, gives me a little bit more of a comfort level that we're raising a really high quality bird
0: right um, certainly a problem with soy is that it is one of the top allergens so I mean even if say it's okay for the birds a lot of people have the soy allergy and it's not okay for them
1: exactly and People are starting to realize, and definitely our customers understand that it's not just about what you eat, it's about what you eat, eat, and that that whole thing has been going around for a little while, but um, we also have a lot of customers that say, you know, I'm 100% vegetarian except for you guys because you're close and you're local and I can come see you and I can come see my food and I have really true comfort over what's going on. I don't have to rely on a bunch of labels and a bunch of stuff that because you guys are you know, an hour from LA, Orange County, and San Diego, and I can just drive out on the weekend and come see my food in action um, and see what my meat eats, you know?
0: So, who says bacon is the gateway meat? Sounds like Primal Pastures <laughs> is also <laughs> good meat at converting vegetarians. Now, I use the term for your chickens. I see you have, uh, we call them primal chickens. So, how do you specifically do you define a primal chicken?
1: Well, it's that whole thing of just going back to, I don't want to call myself a chicken farmer because I don't think that I do the best job of raising a bird. I don't think that humans do the best job of raising a bird. So we go back to like Paleo, Primal, Weston A. Price, all these different diet philosophies or lifestyle philosophies really, it just goes back to that fundamental belief that nature has provided us the optimal template for all of this. So when I say primal farming, what I'm talking about is we try to remove humans out of the element as much as possible. Put these animals back into their natural habitat, and just let them raise on, you know, on grass where they belong. And it's, it's not rocket science, and it's not some kind of a, well, it shouldn't be some kind of a revolutionary method of farming. But unfortunately, it kind of is. So um, we call it primal farming because it's really just letting the land raise the animals, and then we're just there for support, basically.
0: And, and another term I like that you use is non-vegetarian fed, because you see that a lot on these eggs, and I mean, I wonder, do they literally not allow these chickens to have bugs and worms, or is it just a marketing thing that they think people don't want to believe that their chickens are eating animals?
1: You know, the one I was laughing at pretty hard the other day, and um, don't get me wrong, I think um, Mary's has a good product, and they do a pretty good job, but in Whole Foods, there was a pasture-raised um, vegetarian fed bird sitting in the case. And I walked by, I had to do a double take cause I could hardly even believe my eyes, but I walked up to the guy behind the meat counter, you know, poor guy. He doesn't really know what he's talking about, but I started asking him, hey, what's going on with this pasture raised vegetarian fed bird. Are you trying to say that the, you know, you guys have expunged the entire grasslands of all forms of protein, any kind of uh, bugs or worms or something like that. And, you know, he kind of gave me that look, like, uh, just just leave me alone. I was just trying to do my job, and uh, I, I felt sort of bad about it. But um, the whole notion of vegetarian fed obviously goes back to refeeding animals, um, you know, animal parts and stuff like that, So refeeding chickens with uh, processed, ground-up feathers and, ch- and chicken parts and stuff like that. So when they're saying vegetarian fed, they're trying to make sure we as consumers understand that that's not what's going on. Um, but the vegetarian-fed pasture-raised was one that kind of blew my mind because that's it's obviously not possible.
0: Yeah, it blows my mind, too, Yeah, especially the pasture-raised part. I mean, I could understand the factory farms, well, they're not out in the pastures to get any of it, but when it's pasture-raised, I mean, and they see some bugs fly by, some worms walk by, <laughs> they're going to eat it by just by natural oh, yeah. selection.
1: <laughs> yeah, if you've ever been out and watched chickens... uh and, you know, just within the last 100 years, chickens used to be in almost everybody's backyard, and they're basically the garbage disposal, and uh, the garbage disposal has almost replaced these guys, because any kind of food scraps or waste or anything that you had from your kitchen, you would just take out back, feed it to the chickens, and they loved it. They'd gobble it up, and they'd, they'd be all happy about it, because like you said, they're omnivores, and they can eat almost anything, so just within the last 100 years, Zoning requirements and all that stuff have really limited people from keeping their backyard flocks, especially here in Southern California. You just very, very rarely see that anymore. And the closer we get to the city and stuff, it just starts to phase out. So that's that's really unfortunate. That's another thing that, you know, in between the farming that we're doing, and uh, we want to see that come back to urban areas too.
0: Well, that's the thing is this whole modern food system – it's not that new. I mean, really, the ways of a lot of the ways we're saying to go back to eating, it's been done for a long time. And it wasn't that long ago that these methods were all done. I mean, you know, it certainly it it goes back to the beginning of time. But really, if you look at the history, we've been eating a similar way for most of our existence. And only in a short period have we changed all this and changed it very quickly.
1: Yeah, and I know I'm preaching to the choir, but. You know, there's obviously something to it. When you see in the last 50 years what we've done to our food system, and I'm not pointing the figure at anybody because I think we all share the responsibility for this happening, but you look at what's happened with you know, type 2 diabetes, obesity, cancer, all this stuff has just gone through the roof. Autism, everything has spiked so much in the last 50 years to levels that were almost incomprehensible, um, you know, back in 1950, 1960, stuff like that. Um, you at least have to try to draw some parallels between the two. And I know not everybody sees it that way, but I'm sure most of the people on your show um, have connected those dots to some extent. And I think we can all say with pretty good certainty that some of this has to be diet related
0: Oh, certainly. So we'll talk more about how to raise healthy chickens as well as how you can have chickens in your backyard. But first, got to take a word from our sponsors. To Your Health Sprouted Flour Company offers organic sprouted grains and flours for all your baking needs. We have more than 34 sprouted products, hundreds of recipes, and are always available to answer your flour and baking questions. Whether you're making sourdough breads, French baguettes, birthday cakes, granola, or pancakes, let us be your sprouted grain and flour source. Certified organic and kosher, featuring 20 gluten-free sprouted products, visit our website at organicssproutedflower.net or call toll-free 877-401-6837. What is a healthy diet? Conflicting information is thrown at us daily. Help chart your course to wellness with a steady guide, the Weston A. Price Foundation. Our nutrition and health information is helping many families recover from degenerative disease and nutrient deficiencies. Join for only $40 a year and receive our quarterly journal. Visit our website, westonaprice.org, for more details. Olea State's olive oil has been produced by the Cronus family on a small estate in Sparta, Greece since 1856. The olives are all certified organic and hand-picked. The oil is cold-pressed within 30 minutes and is extra virgin with an acidity of 0.24. I use Olea for all my olive oil needs. Cooking, baking, salad dressing, hummus, and much more. Olea is distributed in the U.S. by Carl Berger. All products can be ordered on the website oleastates.com or by contacting Carl by email, K-A-R-L at oleastates.com. And we're back. I'm talking with Paul Greve of Primal Pastures. This is a pasture-raised chicken farm in Temecula, California. Before the commercial break, Paul was talking a little bit about going back to having backyard chickens and... In fact, Primal Pastures is a company that can help you set it up if you've thought, well, maybe I want to raise my own chickens.
1: Yeah, this is a program we're really excited about since we just started in uh, April 2012. Um, a lot of these issues are things that we're tackling for the first time ourselves. So what does it take to prevent predators? How many birds do I need to feed my family three people? Um, how do I contain my birds? How do I, what do I feed them? Um, What are the zoning rules in my county? All this stuff was stuff that we have gone to and dealt with, um, and we're really excited about this program to help people set stuff up for themselves. So my dream, um, and I I mean I love selling our eggs, and people love our eggs, but what I'd love even more than that is to establish these many food systems um, in urban areas, in, in suburban areas, but just all throughout Southern California to help people get set up on their own and have these small backyard flocks like everybody used to um a hundred years ago and it's not that hard. That's the beauty of it is, you know, it's it's easier than keeping a dog. It's just like keeping a cat or something like that at your house. And uh, anybody can do it with a little bit of guidance and that's what I'm excited to help people do.
0: And what kind of guidance specifically do you give them in starting their backyard chickens? Well did
1: you start off with just introducing ourselves and then saying, Hey you know, let us know how many eggs you kind of consume in a week and how many you'd like to have, and then send us a photo of your space. So whatever that is, if it's like a little backyard area or if you've got some acreage or maybe you've got like a really small little porch area or something like that, um, we can work with almost anything, and if it's just too small and there's not enough grass and it's going to be you know, becoming like an inhumane situation, then we'll just advise, you know, so, you, you know, it's probably better to wait until you move or something like that, but where I like to start is just with looking at their space and looking at what kind of requirements that they're going to have, and then building very customized solutions for each person. Because we've dealt with this uh, on a small scale. We're we're a really really small operation. Um, we don't we don't do a lot right now, and we're actually only farming about two and a half acres ourselves. But we can help. You know, we can help somebody raise one bird and get an an egg, two eggs every three or so or we can help them get set up on 10, 20, 30 laying hens, and then they'll be able to support their neighbors and you know do some trading and bartering just like they did back in the olden days.
0: Will they need to know about the zoning rules in their area before contacting you?
1: No, that's another thing that we've dealt with a lot. So zoning rules can be a little bit tricky, and they're hard to read, and we've sort of done our homework on this, and we're starting our operation up, and that's one of the services that, I really wanted to include in this program to get help help get people started raising their own flocks is, you know, just give us your address or even just if you're not comfortable with that at first, just give us what city state you're in. Um, and we can go do that back legwork for you. Um, it's going to be faster for us to do it. We could teach you how to do it too, if you want, but it's, since we've already done it so many times, it's pretty quick for us to check and say, okay, well, you're in Long Beach or whatever. So you're kind of allotted six birds. Um, in a certain amount of their area or your city and, you know, they're totally outlawed. So either if it's outlawed, either you can't do it or we can come up with some customized solutions for you where we come up with a coop that sort of looks like a doghouse or something like that. And there's, there's a, I think, you know, Aaron, there's a big growing movement of people even in LA who are doing the urban chicken thing. And it's, it's
0: just awesome to see that. Yeah. I was going to say, this is a rather new thing. So was this something that, You'd come up with when starting Primal Pastures, or is this an idea that came to you more as you were hearing about the continuing trend of the backyard hens?
1: Yeah, not, not even either of those, actually. So we started having customers that we just can't raise enough birds for eggs right now on the property that we're on. Um, and that's another thing I wanted to do one quick announcement, maybe um, sure.
0: Go ahead. Uh, somewhere
1: in the show, but but on the property that we're currently on right now, we're on two and a half acres, and it's just, we cannot raise enough tends to give us the kind of things that our customers asking for. So we're selling out, um, probably I'd give it an hour or two each month, and our product is gone. So then the obvious extension from that for most people is, oh, well, you've got to get more land, you've got to raise more, you got to do this and that. But, you know, we try to think about it a little more entrepreneurial than that and a little bit more sustainably than that too. And we say, well, what's stopping people from doing this themselves? Everybody's got a dog or cat. Um, it's not like people are unresponsible and they wouldn't be able to take care of a couple of hens. And what really what really inspired me is, you know, being out of the farm, walking out early in the morning, grabbing some eggs, throwing them in, making a fresh omelet with, you know, some garden veggies and stuff like that. There's very few food experiences that are just that um, I don't know, I almost just call it that pure. You know, when you can walk out and you can just come up with food that's totally grown by you and you've got that dark, dark orange yolk and all that stuff is definitely a cool experience. I I want more people to have that.
0: Oh, yeah. There's nothing greater than seeing the dark orange yolk when you crack open the egg.
1: Yeah, especially when it's straight out of your backyard. That's a pretty cool feeling.
0: Oh, yeah. And so in addition to helping them set it up, you provide also stuff as far as, like, fencing and feed for the chickens?
1: Yeah, especially – Here in Southern California, we've got a lot of different predators that can come and get your birds, and um, a little bit of that is probably just going to happen no matter what you do, but there's also a lot of things that you can do to prevent um, any kind of major loss. So we can help you get set up on electric fencing. We can help you get set up on a movable coop. We can help you with all the waterers, with all the feed stuff. We can help you get your first order in with the feed company, or we can help advise you how maybe you don't even need any feed because... You know, you got enough chicken scraps and stuff like that that'll sustain the birds. And that's that's probably the case if you've got a small flock of four to five birds and you're just feeding a family of, you know, two, three, four people or something like that. Actually, we usually say about two birds um, per person is kind of like the the basic guideline. But, but if you've got a decent amount of kitchen waste going out, then there's no reason you even need any feed.
0: Right, so you can just all reuse stuff. And, in fact, I'm sure that you can also then – have the chickens provide the fertilizer for the vegetables that you're growing in your garden.
1: Oh, absolutely. Yeah, and we can help with that, too. There's certain certain veggies you might want to keep fenced off because they'll attack certain things, but um, there's also varieties that you can grow that they'll just walk up, and, you know, that chicken poop is the best fertilizer in the world. I'd love people to be able to check out our website and our Facebook page. We've got some before and after photos, um, literal, just brown, desert looking dirt patches a little bit of water run the chickens over them with some grass seed on them and stuff like that they're truly lush lush pasture now you know like two feet high um, with the birds running through there and all that stuff is a really really cool sight to see and we want to start doing that on a larger scale too
0: so amazing i mean that's what joel Salton did he took land where nothing was growing and he was able to get it to be fertile again
1: yeah exactly and that's a that's part of the announcement that I, well, that is kind of the announcement that I was hoping to make. All right, yeah. Um, hopefully, we've got some fans on here that um, have enjoyed our product and enjoy coming out to see our farm and stuff like that. But we're, we're really, really excited about is we've actually just signed a lease on a place that's going to provide us with up to 150 acres oh, wow. of pasture land. So, we're going to be one of the larger pasture-based operations in Southern California, and we're definitely going to work up to it, but... We're really, really excited. We've, we're working on getting some lamb out there right now. We're going to really try to ramp up our grower um, operation, definitely going to ramp up our egg operation, and then eventually, uh, hopefully by the end of the summer, we can start building up a cattle herd too and start doing some really good um, primal pastures, grass-fed beef, and then eventually definitely try to do some dairy and stuff like that too. So we're really, really excited about it. We've linked up with a guy who loves sustainable agriculture, um, so we're getting, you know, a great rate on the land and stuff. And we're hoping to do a big, you know, welcome to the farm and a summer bath sometime in like September or October and just having all of our friends and you know, healthy eaters and stuff like that come out and join us for a really fun night out on the farm and do a big barbecue and stuff like that.
0: Oh, wow. Where would the land be?
1: It's actually, it's amazing. It's right, right where we are already. So it's really, really close to downtown Temecula. Um, about as urban as you're going to find 150 acres of pasture. And it's on a really cool, um, it's an equestrian place, but they only use it a couple times a year right now. So the guy's very interested in having us raise um, sustainable ag on there and greening up the grass and keeping it green all year round. And he gets a lot of benefit out of it too because we're going to take over some of his water bill and we're going to be bringing people to the property and stuff like that, having people see um, all their animals and see their food in action. So he, he's getting a nice little perk out of it too, not to mention, you know, of course, we'll, we'll kick to the landlord uh, a few chickens and probably some lamb eventually every month and stuff too.
0: Well, that goes to show that there's all of this unused land that's perfect for raising animals because that's the thing a lot of people don't understand with the whole issue of environment and of eating animals is only, I think, between like 10 to 20% of our land is suitable for growing plants but we have lots of unused area where you can raise animals and do mixed farming raising both animals and plants which was really I think maybe the biggest problem that hit agriculture was when we split those two up.
1: Yeah it, that's absolutely true I couldn't agree with you more on that and it's something I, I'm very I feel very strong about predicting that we're, we're moving in the right direction right now with agriculture. And when I talk to young people, there's something happened with the last generation where probably, you know, they may have been more people raised on the farm and the factory system and there's no profit in it. There's nothing you can do, but there's a lot of really, really smart people now, highly interested in agriculture. And I'm really excited about sort of helping people get into this. Um, Like I said, people say, Oh, are you worried about, you know, competitors coming in and, messing with you guys or anything my gosh but please bring all the competitors that are possible because the market is just endless for this stuff and i would love to help more farms get set up in Southern california um you know whether it's growing our operation or helping somebody else grow a new operation um like you said there's so much land here and there's much that's just not being used or maybe you know they're keeping horses on it and it, it dies in the summer and stuff like that but I would love to bring food back to Southern California because originally this, a lot of this was ranch land.
0: I was going to say, I mean, I think there's certainly a lot of room in the market for what you do because, I mean, certainly I get my grass-fed meats and chickens from you know, some great farmers like up in Santa Barbara and in a little Northern California. But we're missing sure. that specifically in the Southern California region of something like within 100 miles where we can get all this great pastured meat.
1: And the problem is, is land prices are very expensive down here, and what I've seen is traditionally, and this is a little bit more up my alley uh, with the business side of things, but what I've seen is people get in the mindset that they have to buy the property in order to farm it, and I think that is something that Joel Salatin talks about a lot. You know, you don't have to own your place. You can get started just renting something. A lot of times, you can even have somebody give you an acre or so just to farm for free, especially if you say, oh... I'll kick you back some really high-quality meat and a little bit of product, and I'll you know, cover your water expenses and stuff like that. Is There's is a lot of land here. I understand trying to buy it is probably out of the question for most people, and myself included for sure. But just renting it or trying to get a little bit of a lease going or something, um, that's where I would advise anybody who wants to get
0: into this to start. I think that's a great suggestion. That kind of goes in line with uh, Rachel Kaplan, who wrote the book, urban homesteading, she talks about how essentially everything you do as an urban homesteader is about renting it because essentially we're just, we're renting the, the earth.
1: Yeah, that's a great point. Yeah, another one that we're really looking forward to is like um, one of the biggest, I hesitate to call it a waste, but since uh, I don't really care, I'll just say one of the biggest wastes of land is our campuses right now. So a lot of times campus will be on these, you know, college campuses this is what I'm talking about. We'll be on these sprawling, uh, beautiful properties and stuff like that. They've just got this beautiful uh, green grass that they have to water all year round. Maybe the students go sit on once a month or something like that, but it's really not being used. And you've got a mass of people that's on that area. And with the new generation coming up that's really interested in you know sustainable farming, permaculture, growing their own food, why don't we encouraging these guys, these college students to get into this too. I mean, they've got so much land, um, they almost don't know what to do with it. So actually just this week I was working with some of the sustainability officers at UCLA about piloting a program called Edible Campus that we want to start having, you know, the the college kids take ownership of their food and growing their own food on campus. As
0: soon as you mentioned the grass on these campuses, the same thought ran into my mind that why can't we, be teaching these college students how to do their own farming and their own agriculture? Because right now there's a shortage of young farmers.
1: Oh, absolutely. I think the average age of a farmer is 60 and rising and the average age of a rancher is 65 and rising. And the beauty of it is it doesn't take a lot of money to start. It doesn't take, um, really doesn't take a lot of knowledge to start. I mean, a, a couple classes and maybe a little bit of mentorship that you can be up and running your own food system in no time. And I think there's so much interest from the, the college age right now. There's no reason to capitalize it. And how cool would it be, you know, you've got your traditional agriculture schools in Nebraska and Iowa and stuff like that. How cool would it be to see the alternative food system, ag movement coming out of places like, you know, University of Southern California, University of California, LA, um, Cal Poly, San Luis Obispo, which already has a really good ag program. But how cool would it be to see that alternative movement coming up out of these places out in the West?
0: too? And I think there's certainly interest in it. I know Graham Merriweather that directed the documentary American Meat, his next film is going to be about young farmers. And there's also the Greenhorns movement, which is all about encouraging new young farmers.
1: Yeah, and I, I'm really convinced it doesn't take much persuading uh I think if I could bring anybody out to our farm just for a couple hours and say, okay, here's kind of what our shorters are like and this is what the lifestyle is like of being out here and and doing this stuff, it's fun. It's truly a rewarding thing and you're providing people with food that you can feel really good about. Um, Joel Salton talks about the whole Dilbert thing and you're doing your cubicle, uh, trying to serve the world kind of job and stuff like that, but there's something amazing about farming and I think part of it is that 95% you know, 95% of the U S has farming in their bloodline because go back a few generations and most people's ancestors were farmers. Um, there's something just deeply satisfying about it. And I'm convinced that as long as consumers keep valuing this stuff and saying, you know, we're going to opt out of the factory food system. We're just going to keep needing more and more of these good pasture based operations. And a lot of it's from guys like you, Aaron, that are out promoting, um, the right things and educating people, but the demand's just, it's just starting right now. I think it's going to grow and it's going to get really big. So we're going to need a lot of those good new young farmers. We
0: are. And so we were talking a little about some of the things you provide, obviously you provide eggs and you provide chicken. And I also like that you provide some of the less popular parts of the chicken, but certainly are important health wise, such as the livers and the chicken hearts, the organ meats.
1: Yeah, that's, that's, something that was a no-brainer for us, Um, not only from, you know, it helps us a little bit because we can make a couple extra dollars off of that stuff, but that stuff is just so healthy. Um, The organ meats are so vital to our health, Um, and I'll just focus on one for a second. So, like the liver, Um, when you start talking about what a liver does in the human body or in an animal's body, it's basically catching a lot of the toxins and stuff that are going through. So the problem is, is you say, oh, I want to try some liver out or whatever. So you go to Ralph's or whatever supermarket that has the cheap liver and you buy that stuff and you fry it up. Well, think about what you're doing for a second, because you're basically taking a factory farm bird, which has had a ton of nasty toxins running through it. um, And you're, you're more or less taking the dirtiest part of that bird as your meal. And that's just, that's just scary. I mean, I, I wouldn't. Recommend eating factory farm chicken, anyways, but if you are going to do it, avoid the liver like the plague because that thing is going to be full of a bunch of junk. Um, so, we love that we're able to offer our livers up, and it's actually a, a really healthy liver because there's not a bunch of toxins and junk going through it. Um, and people will buy it just to eat, saute it. A lot of times, people are kind of weirded out by the texture or whatever, so we get people that will grind it up and um, put chicken liver in with their ground beef and stuff like that, just because uh, they don't really like taste, but they love the health benefits and stuff. So we get, we get all kinds of stuff. And there's even things that aren't on our website, like chicken heads, uh, that people just, they adore them. And we don't put them on the website because I think it kind of freaks people out sometimes, but, uh, we, we sell, you know, 90, five percent of that bird and whatever we don't sell goes right back into the ground as compost and just raises up more birds so it's it's very uh closed loop system
0: right i can understand that that would grow some people out so you decide not to put on the website of course i think on this show probably won't grow (laughs) too many people out or if it did okay well i guess i lost a new listener (laughs) sorry guys yeah sorry but uh we talk about this stuff all the time so uh maybe uh this isn't the show for you if uh but yeah the chicken heads those well, here,
1: here, pretend like you're a, uh, pretend like you're out foraging two thousand years ago, and you don't just have a, a supermarket where you can go get your food from, and you know, you're, like you're lucky to sneak up on that bird and you finally catch it, and that flock all flies away, and you've got one bird to feed your family for the next two weeks before you can find a protein source again. Do you really think that you're just going to throw that bird out because you think it's kind of gross, or do you think, you know? that bird is going to be your sustenance for the next two weeks. You're going to make the most out of it. And that's another thing that I love. I know our product is obviously a little bit more expensive. We have a lot more costs that go into it and stuff. But one thing that's really cool is you see people just getting the most out of that bird. So I'd say everybody I talk to takes those bones and they make bone broth out of it. And, you know, that one chicken can provide you with three, four or five meals depending on, you know, how big your family is and stuff like that. So even though it seems expensive at the outset to pay $25 for a bird, um, you can break that up and have it be a really um, economical source of protein. And then obviously not to mention, um, you know, if you're eating factory farm birds and you're paying for your health care later on and you should build that into the cost of food and all that stuff. But all that stuff aside, um, you know, it's really all about getting the most out of it.
0: Bird. I think we're thinking of the same lace because a lot of things that, uh, that you've been bringing up I've been actually uh, thinking about mentioning too and certainly the whole bone broth I was going to say with the heads and a lot of the other parts that you sell like the necks the feet that's the great thing of what they're for is yep. for making the bone broth I mean that makes the best bone broth and we can include all those parts the gizzards also
1: oh yeah it's amazing and if there's anything that would kind of gross you out to eat because believe it or not people eat the feet and people eat the actual head of the bone like But yeah, even for me, uh, uh, I haven't really gotten into eating the feet of the heads yet, but I'll definitely throw them in my broth, and it makes the broth that much more amazing. And especially with the feet, you start talking about the gelatin content and all that stuff, and it's just really healthy. And then when you when you take a step back and you just say, okay, this really makes sense, you know, like from uh, from a basic evolutionary kind of intelligent design standpoint, why wouldn't we eat whole bird? And, and why wouldn't we boil it down and make it into broth? Like it just, it just makes instinctual sense to us, especially for, you know, people like your listeners that um, they understand kind of the natural template of food and of eating and stuff like that.
0: So now, if people want to buy your chicken products, how can they go about obtaining them?
1: We've got a, or an interesting system that we've set up, and it's kind of almost like a test to see, could this be. Sort of a revolu- revolutionary way of distributing food. So we want to keep the cost down as much as possible. Even though we have something that's really expensive for us to make, we want to keep it within within means and within people's reasonable budgets. So we've taken over the whole distribution cycle ourselves, and we sell. The only way we sell is directly to customer, and then we we go up and deliver it ourselves. So we've got drop sites in Los Angeles. We do it at UCA. We've got uh, Long Beach, and then we have Orange County, and we're just adding San Diego this month, which we're we're really excited about. We're going to add a San Diego drop site, too. Um, So Basically, our customers will go jump on our our website, join our mailing list, and then once a month, about a week before stuff is ready, um, we'll send out a link and say, okay, jump on the store and pre-order whatever you'd like, and then... Once everything's pre-ordered, we bring that stuff up to those drop sites um, once a month, and we basically distribute ourselves. So that's kind of cool, twofold because we're, because we're cutting costs and we don't have to pay, you know, a huge volume discount and stuff like that. But it's also really cool because I get to go up and talk to my customers, and my customers get to talk to their farmer. Um, they get to you know look me in the eye and say, "Is this guy serious? Let me see really what's going on." and you get to know my integrity and my values. And when I say my, I'm speaking for all of us farmers at primal Pastures, but I think it's cool to be able to give you one degree of separation from your food. And then obviously you're always more than welcome to come out and pick up your order from the ranch. And we'd love to have people do that um, all the time, but we realize it's impractical to drive from whatever West LA out to Temecula once a month. So that's why we're offering the delivery, but just the simple fact of being one degree of separation um, from the person who's raising your food, I think, is really cool, um, and definitely, it's it's revolutionary because from a factory farm, the amount of time that that thing changes hands from the time it was actually being raised into confinement operation until it's at us, the consumer, um, is probably five or six different organizations.
0: I think it's pretty cool, too, to be able to buy directly from your farmer on a name basis with where you get the food from. We have to go to our desserts in a second, but before you go, please tell the listeners the address for your website so they can know how to order your products, sign up for your list, and also, if they're interested, get the backyard hens set up.
1: Yeah, definitely. We're at www.primalpastures.com. And that's our main hub. We've got our store on there, and we've got the information for our mailing list. And then we've also got some more detailed information about how we raise our, our birds, what our family is all about, um, yeah, anything you want to know. And then there's, we've also got an email address on there. If you've got specific questions, um, this is just something that we love, is answering these kind of questions. Please feel free to ask us anything. Uh, there's, there's nothing that's off limits, and we're here to help you guys. Um, we're here to learn ourselves. So if you, you know, have something interesting that you see online, or if you come across some interesting research, we'd love to connect with you, um, whether you're going to be a customer or not. But we would just love to connect with
0: you and you know just just talk. Oh well, Paul. It's been a pleasure, and certainly look forward to more visits to your farm. And now for the desserts. How to live appropriately in the upcoming week. Today and tomorrow are the last days to register for the Weston Price Pasadena Chapter's traditional organic Korean dinner with duck meat and kimchi. The dinner will be held at Ode Dae San restaurant, where the owner has agreed to make a special meal according to Weston Price standards, and will be going out of her way to purchase organic produce. With a good turnout, the owner will be interested in serving more food like this. If this goes well, they'll also do more events like this in the future. To register, go to the chapter's website at westonpricepasadena.blogspot.com and click on the Special Events tab. Next, until Tuesday, the Village Green Network is offering you the chance to buy 30 e-books for only $39. This comes to about 150 per e-book and is a savings of over 90%. The e-books include works by Kelly the Kitchen Cop, Sandrine Love, Sarah Pope, Liz Wolf, Jenny McRuther, Matt Stone, and many others. To order this excellent collection, go to the website villagegreennetwork.com. That's all for this week of The Appropriate Omnivore. My guest next week is Scott Graziebeck of Zuke Live Foods. For more information on my guests, my news stories, and my recommendations, go to my website at appropriateomnivore.com. Oh,